You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello and welcome to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Diane Brady. Even before the COVID-19 pandemic, agility was a hot topic. Some companies came into the crisis with agile practices, and let's just say that others have had agility thrust upon them. But what does it really mean to be agile, and how can companies use those practices to transform their organization? Simon London finds out, speaking with partners Sharina Ibrahim, who works in New Jersey, and Shale Thacker, who's based in London. Here's Simon. Sharina and Shale, thanks for being here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank Thank you. you. So first question is, let's, let's just define our terms, because this is, this is a hot topic. It's a topic one reads quite a lot. But Shale, why don't you take a first whack at this? How would you define agile? That's a very good question to start with. Um, Simon, agile started life as a set of working practices in software development that were really focused on ensuring that product development was done in a customer-focused way, so end-user-centric, like heavily iterative, you know, all of those things that, you know, a lot of people associated with Agile at a working practice level. And, you know, we're at a very exciting time now where those working practices are being scaled up, not just scaled up in IT, but actually scaled up across entire organizations. And we are ending up with organizational constructs that look and feel quite different to what a lot of us grew up with over the last 30 years. We're at a sort of tipping point now where uh, a a lot of companies, a lot of entities are looking at themselves and saying, well, is there an opportunity for us to organize in a different way and organize in a different way to get a different outcome? So it's actually uh, in particular around how do we increase that external focus, that adaptability, uh, that speed, the raw cycle time. Agile is at its core and its simplest. It's a set of almost team-based working practices. If you ask me what is agility at an enterprise level, it's the scale up of that in a meaningful way across entire organizations. So maybe, Sharina, just double click on that. When we're talking about it at an organizational level, what are some of the things that you're going to see on the ground that would define an enterprise or an organization which is becoming agile in that sense. I think the one thing that also is really important to think about when we think about agile organizations is to remember that it's not only about what we would typically think about as organization structure. Uh, To really become agile, it's very much around mindsets and behaviors and really adopting a very different way of working. Um, And so, you know, I was just actually having a conversation yesterday with someone who sort of said, well, we have cross-functional teams. It sounds basically the same as what Agile is, and it's actually really not. If you have a truly Agile organization, you have groups of people who are singularly focused on what we would call a mission or a a value driver or task, however you want to define it, and the right groups of people are brought together to accomplish that. So if it's about coming together to launch a new product, The people from insights and R&D and marketing and supply chain will all come together um, into a squad uh, or a team. And their job is to say, instead of launching a new product in three years, how do we do it in six months? How that's enabled is not just to say we came together and give them a task. It is, you know, giving them the room uh, to make decisions quickly. It is giving them uh, the autonomy to pull in the right people when they need so that they can get the right insights at the right time. Um, and they can actually 
make choices to to move faster than you know what our traditional hierarchical uh, matrixed organizations will allow them to do. If you're on a team, you feel quite empowered. You feel like you have an end goal. Everyone on the team, no matter what part of the organization you come from, are incented on that end goal. Um, not what my function or chapter expects of me, um, but we're all driving against the same goal in the same time. Right. Now then, I think an interesting question is, how many organizations are really trying to go big on this? Because I think, as you say, there are a lot of organizations who say, well, we have cross-functional teams, or there are certain parts of the organization, typically you know, software development to begin with, but other things that are trying to work in an agile way. How many organizations would you say are really going big and trying to do this at enterprise scale? I think we have to be a little cautious around what we define as going big because the end blueprint of what one company may look like in its fully agile state could look and feel quite different to another, right? And that depends highly on industry context, the specific portfolio, you have a whole bunch of things, uh, not least <laughs> the, the legacy and uh, sort of historic baggage that yeah. a lot of organizations have. Now, if you ask me how many have an ambition to do this at, at scale. You know, we've, we've done recent survey work across a broad spectrum of companies across industries that, that say, you know, 70% of companies in some shape or form are piloting Agile now. It is a big difference from running Agile pilots to actually feeling comfortable that version one of whatever your Agile operating model is, is in place. And with that, it's not a, I've done my architecture, now I can sit back and breathe. You've actually, you've, but, but, but it is having an ambition to say, I'm not just doing it in IT. I'm not just doing it in these shiny new digital areas, or I'm not just doing it in these particular business units. Almost using system thinking to say, I can have individual teams that work in, in very much the way that Sharina described earlier, but actually I need a backbone as well that supports them. I need an HR system that enables people to move around. I need a finance system and a budgeting system that allows me to resource reallocate. I need to have career paths defined for people. So, you know, I, I think there are a lot of companies, a lot of companies, I would argue even almost say most companies are experimenting. And then I think there are a handful of companies around the world who have done it at enterprise scale successfully. And interestingly, those aren't the biggest companies. You know, actually the ability of some small and mid-sized companies to move very quickly on this agenda, where this is actually quite existential for them. You do this or you die. Um, or indeed, they have the ability to mobilize the entire organization against this mission. Those are where we see some really, really interesting case studies. But the one thing that comes out of them is, um, you know, you are getting happier customers, you're getting a productivity uplift, and you're getting happier employees, improved engagement. So that's, so when you ask me, it's a long way of saying how many companies are trying, an awful lot are trying. It's a journey is, is the thing, but there are an awful lot, probably maybe, like we said, 70% based on survey work that are either on that journey or have an ambition to go on that journey. And I think there is maybe two other things to consider. The ones that we see kind of moving faster along that journey are the ones who in many cases have to, right? It's a do it or die kind of thing. And that's maybe a little bit, you know, kind of alarmist. We see that, um, for example, in the financial services industry, places where the external environment is changing so fast, digitization, how consumers are using technology and interacting with that industry, um, so that you actually have to change in a way that is 
faster to respond to what's going on, you know, meeting the needs of their consumers. There's another slew of, of industries, whether it's consumer or healthcare, coming right behind it as well. Um, so I think that's one reason that kind of accelerates people through the journey. The other, I would say, is leadership. There's definitely companies maybe who are not quite on the cusp of like, we really must change. But the CEO or a business unit leader has really recognized the power of what this could be um, and has started to take the, the organization on a journey, albeit maybe slowly, but trying to really build the muscle in order to get there first. What are some companies that come to mind that are a, a, a fair way along on the journey? I mean, there are some fairly talismanic examples that are high profile. So I would argue in the banking sector, actually, <laughs> you, you could pick many banks, but the most, uh, the most publicly known is obviously ING. Um, you know, if you look in the telecom sector, Spark in New Zealand is a great example of leadership-led transformation. Um, and you could argue in, you know, the pharmaceutical world, uh, Roche have been taking a real leadership stance, but with a very different angle around creating agile leaders and what that means. And the list goes on. I would say are still, <laughs> those, are still those are still companies that are on a journey. On the journey, yeah, again. I think on the, on the, uh, just to add in a couple of other industries, I think we are, are seeing Walmart, um, which is a very you know, different industry, uh, really starting to see benefits of using that um, methodology as well. And then there are companies that were sort of born agile. I mean, Spotify, Spotify again is one of these sort of talismanic examples of a company that's just done this almost since the very beginning. Absolutely. And that's where I think when I referred to the historic baggage of companies, if you're talking about a hundred person startup, actually these working practices, particularly if it's a tech enabled company. It's probably how you work. It's absolutely the most efficient and effective way of working in small groups. If you're talking about a 60, 70,000 person uh, organization that is across 80 countries and has, you know, a, a been operating in a matrix with very well, you know, well-established norms and, you know, that, that's more of a journey. But I would argue there, that is also where a ton of value creation potential is, because those are the companies that were built based on a simple premise with the matrix that if we leverage, we, the, the matrix is a great structure for leveraging scarce skill and, you know, frankly, being the 800 pound gorilla and stomping on your competitors, right? That's a, that is a wonderful construct for that. It is not a great construct if you have to move at speed. And that's, and that's where a lot of, as, as I think Sharina referred to, the, whether it is external regulatory pressures, whether it is shifting consumer behavior, whether it is challenge of incumbents by disruptors, the, this imperative around speed. There's urgency. Is, there's real urgency. And what's interesting about it is if you, look at, if you think about a spectrum of you know, born digital, typically they start small and can do everything that Shale just described. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have, you know, very large global companies, um, highly matrixed, functional. What's interesting is that the challenge is sort of just an area of gray. So we obviously have already talked about, you know, if you're large, how do you actually think about changing such a large organization, really thinking about, you know, moving to an agile but, or, um, organization with the right backbone. What you see is actually as startups scale themselves, they start to run into the same questions because you actually can't just keep running like that, um, you know, as you get bigger. So they too then have to say, well, what's the backbone that I need to put in place in order to continue to work in this way? But also if you think of agile as a outcome, 
of a particular setup where you're getting the Lego bricks right around which bits are dynamic and which bits need to be stable for me to be able to deliver speed and being nimble and all that good stuff. Startups, ton of dynamic, not a whole lot of stable. Incumbents, huge amounts of stable, not a lot of dynamic. So it's different at the, the different ends of the spectrum, but as Sharina says, the convergent, the equilibrium point for these, there's a lot of cross-learning to be had. Yeah, and I think the other thing I would add too is, you know, oftentimes one misconception is, you know, agile is kind of just do what you want. Um, and it's not actually. It's a very, it's systematized, it's pretty structured um, way in which to work. And so, you know, this notion of stable, what should be stable and what should be dynamic is really an important distinction that people should think through because the stable enables people to come to work. They know kind of the framework that they're working in. They know what's their role and what might be their career path. And they know kind of where their home is, if you will. And the dynamic is actually ways of working in which, you know, you can bring different people together so that they can quickly get something done and then move on to the next one. And a pretty important um, you know, success factor, I would argue, is the notion of dynamic resource allocation, which you know, our larger, more stable companies, they're not used to that. You used to like, you know, year-long planning cycles, budget cycles, where you know, to really be much more agile, you have to think about quarterly. And so it sounds easy when you say, <laughs> dynamic resource allocation. We have, we have reams of proof that that actually is a value-creating driver, um, but it's a very hard thing to change. To do it, yeah. If, especially if you're you know, um, not used to it at all. I think to dig into the point around dynamic resource allocation as an exemplar of the types of things that are different, there's absolutely a hardwiring piece. You know, finance organizations are not built to move money around. Um, you know, we don't have the... MI, the management information systems that allow us to track. We don't have the fora and meeting cadence and business calendar that frees up enough time to make real trade-offs. We then haven't trained leaders to have the right um, discussions around this. But sitting above all of this is also a massive change in management mindset. You know, we have an entire cadre of leaders and I will, you know, I will paint this in black and white just to paint out the extremes where, you know, I have been successful as a leader because I was given my budget and I delivered or over-delivered on my budget. That is very different from an enterprise leadership mindset, which is, you know, essentially we're all in service of a mission. To do that, I accept that if things change, you know, the budget I thought I had, the financial and human capital can and should be reallocated. And that is, is a massive shift from my, my number and budget commitment is my bond as a leader, and that is my commitment to the enterprise too. I am now a participating leader in service of a mission. Another difference, um, you know, is very much how you think about incentives. Shale's story, or example, if you're incented on making your budget, that's what you're going to do. Um, whereas as you think about a, an organization that's agile, you're not, you're not incented on your function. You're not incented on your box. You're incented on the purpose, the mission, which is very clearly tied to the value creation of the company actually changes the entire mindset and behaviors of the people. Again, easy to say, not very easy yeah. to kind of flip the, the switch when you've grown up in an organization. So let me just pick up on, on a, a term you used uh, earlier, Shell. You talked about a blueprint. Yeah. Uh, that implies to me it's a sort of overall mapping of the different elements of this end state that you want to get to. 
Just double click on that for us. What are the elements in the blueprint? The blueprint is actually quite a key step in a company's journey. Um, it's not always the first step, but it is a key step. Uh, companies can start by piloting, but without a 60-70% view of how all the building blocks come together in the enterprise level, it's quite hard. And that's why we think a blueprint is, um, is important. Now, what is in a blueprint? Um, you don't do... You don't do Agile for the sake of it. Your agenda around applying Agile working practices is strongly linked to the ability to create value. And that means which parts of your business system actually could create more value by being faster or more adaptable. Um, and indeed, which ones could create more value by having more dynamic resource reallocation. So it's almost through this value creation lens, you look at your business. So that's the first step. And you identify nodes. So there are bits of your business for which agile working practices are massively relevant and create a huge opportunity. There are frankly other bits which don't matter so much or an agile is not going to transform them because they are actually steady, consistent. Now, they play an important role in the system. Um, but, uh, but the blueprint first identifies where are these nodes of value, right? Where is agile going to make a difference? I often say to clients, you know, we, people will say we want to become agile. And so I think you have to ask to what end and where. Absolutely. And if you are not clear on that, and again, it seems very simple, it, people are not clear. It really is an, a critical um, underpinning of success as a starting point. Yeah, absolutely. So let's take step one of the blueprint as understanding where is value created by the application of, of agile working practices. The second piece is, okay, if I have those, I have a set of options of almost dynamic Lego bricks as a visual I use. And you may think that agile working practices equals cross-functional team. The reality is that's not at all true. There are plenty of working models that contribute to agility. By the way, going all the way back to lean working practices and some yeah. quite, um, um, quite old-fashioned but very relevant concepts, uh, there are quite a few more Lego bricks than you might think. The step two of the blueprint is you apply these dynamic models and you choose the right model for the right node of value to create the most value, right? And once you've got that right, it's great. You have a lot of individual, almost a patchwork. Then you have to think about what's the minimum backbone I need to put in place to actually get the system working. And it's important to think of the backbone in this blueprint, not as organizational units you currently have. Often it could be shared vision, common career pathing, job description. It's actually thinking expansively about what is the backbone in the system that holds the system together. As an enterprise leader, you can take the step back and say, am I comfortable that this is all building to an endpoint that makes sense? So three steps I'm hearing. Number one, really figure out and agree as a leadership team where is value created through the application of more agile working practices where could it be transformative? Number two, what are the working practices we're going to apply where? And to your point, it's not always just one thing. It's not like everything's going to work on a scrum basis kind of thing. And then thirdly, okay, what are the more stable elements? What are the background backbone? What's the enablers that we're going to need to allow us to scale this? Is that right, broadly? And the one thing I think is implicit in your number one, um, when you said the leadership team really has to be clear on on the vision where the value is. Um, implicit in that is that the leadership team actually um, really understands what they're about to embark on. 
Uh, and so, you know, how, what kind of scale or, or vision of transformation are they thinking of? That doesn't mean they have to know today that we want to, you know, become 70% agile or whatever it is. But they do need to have a sense of what, what, what are we trying to accomplish if we go down this journey? You know, uh, because just doing one or two pilots here or there, that might get you something. But if you have a bigger vision, if you're trying to turn the company or the, a part of the company in, in a different way, being clear on what that is and how they will have to lead in a different way is actually a very important thing yeah. for them to be very aligned around. I mean, we look at the success factors and, you know, it's, it's also the failure modes. And one of the biggest is actually um, ambivalent leadership commitment. It's really easy to sit back and say, look, actually, there are a whole bunch of pilots going on. We'll sit back and see how they turn out. The reality is after a while, because in, you can create a huge amount of value in a localized agile pilot, but to some extent, it's like entropy. You're shifting the complexity to a new set of interfaces and you rely on the energy and enthusiasm of the people to sustain that pilot. That is not indefinite. So pilots can run out of steam and organizations can lose their window because then agile becomes a dirty word or a failed pilot word in the organization. And it's not about learning. It's actually just that thing we tried a few years ago. So it, you can't pilot your way to scale. At some point, leadership has to commit. At some point, there will be, particularly when it comes to the backbone, a switching of how the organization is wired. And that takes commitment. So it is that kind of, at some point, you've got to make a leap of faith. At some point, you've got to say, I mean, not without evidence. Yeah. It's, not, it's not so much a leap of faith. I think it is an understanding of what what the consequences of this are going to be for the organization and you as a cadre. And the consequences are profound if you're going to do it at scale. That's the point. We believe yes, that they are. absolutely. It's a transformation and it is very, very different from how organizations operate today. But that is not to say that the people who operate in our organizations today uh, are irrelevant to the future organization. It's just you have to be signed up for the journey. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, Chael, because I think... Um, you know, I fundamentally believe, and obviously I'm biased, that, you know, whether it's five years down, X years down, every organization is going to have to, and you know, embody some components of Agile. You're just going to have to. The external world, the consumer environment is just moving in a way that we have to change. Um, and so if you take that as a starting point... Um, I think it's very important to make sure you don't end up in a place where people feel like they're on the A team or the B team, um, because that's not helpful, nor is it healthy, nor is it right. And so how do you actually move from what are fairly monolithic organizations today, everyone has their role, everyone has their function, et cetera, to one where everybody really embraces, you know, that there's, it, it's actually quite different and dynamic and it will continue to change. That is the point. Right. So how many of our clients or companies today go through, you know, reorganization number one and then, you know, before that one's just finished, you're, you're on to reorganization number two because you're trying to actually get it right in terms of what you need to respond. And, you know, if you actually get it right from an agile perspective, you will never have to do a reorganization because that is the fabric of how you work. You should be able to shift and change, and maybe today you work in a stable part of the business, and tomorrow you'll be on an agile team. The, the, if you can just sort of paint that picture, it's quite different from what they are, what is today, and so therefore, to your point, it's quite a shift. But at the same time, as you're on that journey, it's really important to make sure that people come along, understand, you know, where they are and in their place in the organization. And to build off that, I think there's a as we 
go back to the mindsets and why is this, why is this sometimes difficult? Um, you know, there is a perception, and I use the word perception of risk around this because it feels like moving from classical command and control systems to much more decentralized systems. Now, the reality of the of, of risk versus uh, you know fully accounting for the cost of doing nothing actually the taking into account that this isn't throwing all the pieces in the air but it's actually quite a regimented but different way of working you know, so there's that piece around risk that is quite important around getting this sort of mindset shift and the second is you're talking about redefining how people value themselves and value impact in businesses so you know we are in a system where you know if i do well at my job I will, yes, I'll get a pay raise, but I'll get a new title. And with that new title comes more people and I manage bigger and bigger things. And that is not how, I mean, the organizations that go through these transformations, one of the outcomes of more fluid resource reallocation and really focusing the, almost the body mass of the organization around the biggest priorities means that you don't have as large of a management layer in between. And that delayering is quite disorientating for people who want, but hang on, if I'm great at my job, you know, there are all of these roles that I could have got into. So this links to some of the things like incentives, career pathing. How do you reward, recognize, and give people progression in a world that is fundamentally more dynamic? So these are all the, I mean, these are all types of challenges. This underlines for me a couple of things. Number one, why it's a transformation if you're going to do it at scale, because it has to touch all of these different Absolutely. systems, mindsets, processes, I mean, everything. And, and the other thing is what you're talking about there again is sort of backbone yeah. in a way, isn't it? Yeah. Thinking yes. about rewards, career progressions, Absolutely. different roles, maybe having fundamentally different ways of being recognized for yeah. impact Absolutely. compared to a traditional organization. I think it's, you know, it's, it's it, to make it really real, it's in for many current employees, it's very much tied up in how they value their own self-worth, right? Yeah. My title, my number of people I... And so, um, as you say, I think the backbone parts are all of those things. Um, and what's interesting is the younger employees of today actually prefer to work in a much more fluid, that's how they grew up, right? In a more more information, fluid environment. Um, and so that's also gonna play into this as organizations grow. I think we haven't touched on enough, maybe as you think about the backbone, is processes. So this implies that quite a few processes actually have to change, right? And one we already touched on was how do you think about budgeting, budgeting. resource yeah. reallocation, right? That is a, that needs to be re-engineered. Yes, because if you've got a plodding budgeting process, it's, you're not going to be able to allocate capital in a Without the way. technology infrastructure underneath it to help you do it dynamically, right? That's one of the barriers today, that you don't have the ability to kind of the system doesn't allow you to be that fast. So budgeting is one of them. You know, you've already talked about um, career pathing and career planning and how I think about, it, it, you know, to some it's blasphemous to not necessarily know in three or five years where I should be going. Um, and people have to get comfortable with some of those things. Not again in all parts, but how do you actually live in a world that has some of these other things? So I think really going through, um, and some processes will stay the same, things that are, you know, regulatory driven or, or whatnot. I mean, it's not to say that car everything rental, will change. Car rental policies. <laughs> yeah, right. But I was just yeah. like, um, yeah, yeah. You know, just I, there's, as an there's example. Absolutely, like, yeah. I mean, if I, if I, yeah, company car policies. Well, that's an example of like, let's, you know, there's going to be a whole bunch of backbone stuff, which is 
you know, speed and adaptability do not impact in any shape or form to be trivial. <laughs> no, but it's right. It's, 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 it's not to say everything will change. There are some that will need to, to enable this and some are many will just stay. One important clarification, Simon, on the, um, uh, it is absolutely true that, you know, the younger generation of workers adapt to this. You know, they've sort of grown up in this environment and actually are adapting to it a lot more quickly and it's natural to them. That is not to say that irrespective of age, engagement doesn't go up. Like, so when we look at teams, our data shows actually age is, it's not that, the, the, you know, the younger workers are really happy working this way and the older workers actually find it terrible. It's actually teams, irrespective of age, see massive increases in engagement. I'm talking about 20 points, 20 percentage points plus, right? So this is, the, these are people enjoy working in these as long as the rest of the system allows them to do it and does not massively penalize them or make their life considerably more complicated. I was going to ask a devil's advocate question, actually. Um, I mean, is one of the reasons why the younger generation adapts to this big generalization, but a lot of people, a lot of younger people, particularly having come into the workforce in the last 10 years, have been forced to do gig work. And gig work is almost a form of agile outside any organization. I mean, are we talking here in some way about bringing gig work inside? The gig economy has come up now, I would say forced is a very strong word, right? We have generated platforms that enable, you know, that's kind of, so I don't, I, that, that sense of compulsion when we talk about the gig economy is always dangerous territory to get into. Um, but uh, absolutely, the, the fact that there is an element of flexibility, there is an element of uncertainty on what you're going to be doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, what I would say is there isn't the element of the gig economy, which is uncertainty of income. And actually, you know, that, that, that sort of the uncertainty stretches so far, but actually it does, it, you still have the security of being part of a mission, right? The mission part of it, this again comes part of the stable backbone, which is, you know, it, there, there are elements of purpose, elements of mission, elements of security that sit around this way of working that actually allow people to step away from a lot of the insecurities of day-to-day -day, what it's like working in a big company that is actually negative and actually frees up a lot of the positive energy, which is where we see the uplift. I completely agree. I think that's actually a very important point to maybe reinforce, which is this notion of security, for lack of a better word. It's, it's, it's not necessarily job security as we know it today, but we do know what you know is, you know, the, the fundamental fabric of the company that you're working for and with um, what they're trying to do, how they're trying to do it, whether it's processes, how I'm treated, the ways of working. And so, yeah, I may not know exactly today that tomorrow I'm going to be in a different, um, against a different mission, but I know that's how I work and that, that you know, I, that, that baseline of security, which all people want, you know, is I think one that's an important thing not to, to miss, otherwise it, it feels like it's a bit of a free-for-all and it's not. I'll play devil's advocate back to you, which is to say that ultimately the reason we see the engagement scores go up in the way they do is a greater sense of fulfillment, a greater sense that, that an individual um, worker's time is spent on things that are more value adding, plus greater connection to a mission that is, feels more relevant. Those are things that far outweigh uh, almost the comfort blanket of the old way of doing things. And I know exactly where I fit into the big system. So the devil's advocate back would be, yes, there is elements of the gig economy, but you know, the engagement scores are the outcome that show that one of those factors significantly outweighs the other. Yeah. So I think a, a takeaway, f genuine takeaway for me out of this conversation is that 
you know, I assumed that to do Agile, you had to be sort of doing squads, scrums, chapters, um, uh, guilds, you know, there's just sort of a bunch of core processes that you just have to do if you're going to claim to be doing Agile. It sounds like actually, as this is scaling across different industries and different sectors and different companies, it's more heterogeneous than that. Absolutely. Uh, there's, it's definitely more heterogeneous than that. And I think, I think the way to think about it is maybe walk away from the, all the terminology and the vernacular. And, and there are just core concepts in different ways of working as that we've talked about. There's, you know, whether we call them tribes and squads, you know, um, the right people coming together to kind of accomplish a mission. There's, you know, what we would call sort of self-managing teams who sort of run themselves. There's, you know, flow-to-work models. There's a number of different models. And even when you um, do things that uh, have a construct that many would call tribe squads, chapters, frankly, the language or the terminology, people are starting to use what works for them. So I would try to not get caught up in the language and more under what are the, the principles around ways of working that really help unlock the the value. The two things that have been particularly important, I think, when I've worked with companies on this. One is really defining for your company how the Lego bricks come together. And that's which of the Lego bricks are most relevant because you don't want to create a whole bunch of additional complexity by um, doing things in a different way in a different part of the organization to achieve the same end. And then the second piece is, you know, you can solve an individual team, but actually that blueprint piece is really, really important. Let's just finish on, how do you even begin? Let's say as a management team, you're sitting, you've done an offsite, you've, you've, you're beginning to think, we've got to go for this. Like, yeah, what, just describe the journey. How do you start? I think there's um, uh, a couple of things, at least, if you're that management team. When you say we've got to start, I would ask that first question on our, our blueprint is, you know, agile to what end? What is it that we're, where's the value creation? What are we trying to get to? and over what period of time. Um, and, and in that uh, discussion, I would actually make sure you guys as a team really understand if you want to take on moving in this path, what what does sort of the from to start to look like from both a management team mindsets and behaviors and how you have to lead and, and what might that imply from an organization perspective. Um, and then I think once you kind of get your mind wrapped around that, it doesn't have to be perfect, but you need to kind of get at least in the right, you know, zip code, if yeah. you will. Um, then really starting to, to say, maybe we take one or two or three of those real value creating levers and say, what might we actually start to uh, pilot or try within the organization? But then really know that that is a bit of a proof of concept. It's not a pilot in the sense of we want to try it and let it go. It's to how do we want to prove out some of these things to build conviction for ourselves and the organization and then know that at some point you'll want to actually, as Shale said before, think about how to flip the switch and start to scale. The one thing I would add is there is no substitute to going and actually seeing a company that's done it. Like Because I, we can talk about this. You can talk to practitioners. You've got to see, you it, see it on a page. You can do a workshop until you actually see the deployment of this at any form of scale go and talk to leaders who have done this before and what their journey has been like. That, I think, if you were sitting, that that needs to be pretty high on the list of to-dos for the leadership team you described because um, it's great that they all held hands and said, we've got to do this, but it, you know, unless they really know what this is or what it could be. It's meaningless. It's, meaningless. Yeah. it's actually even step one before you have yeah. that conversation. So you have a, 
a sense of what you're starting yeah. to So go, go see. Go see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This sounds negative, but the failure modes question is often very revealing. So if you just think of what a couple of failure modes that you see out there. One, I would say we talked a lot about leadership conviction. And actually, that, that, if that leadership conviction isn't there or you allow, a, um, you know, a, you allow the proliferation of pilots, but actually you, you don't have the conviction as a leadership. You're never really going to flip the switch. Do not go, do not collect $200. The second piece, um, and you know, the corollary is the blueprint, but the reason is you let a thousand flowers bloom, loads of pilots, you let leaders who are, have the conviction do things in their own way. You don't define enough guardrails around what the way will, the right scalable way will be for yeah. your, your, then you, you actually don't get any practices scaling up sufficiently to warrant the backbone change. Yeah. Um, the third one is actually, you hope to pilot your way to scale. <laughs> and actually, as a result, you don't design the backbone. Um, the fourth one is capability building, right? I mean, we, we have talked a lot about this being a massive shift in capabilities, both at an individual level, but also at an institutional level, both the rewiring of processes, but also giving people the skills to thrive in this new way. This is, for most organizations, going to be an unprecedented way of working, uh, an unprecedented capability building challenge, because you're talking about a large number of people needing to learn how to do yes, things the, quite fundamentally. The agile coach has become a, a role in its own right, Absolutely. right? A lot of organizations in the same way that it used to be like the Six Sigma black belt world. Now you've got Absolutely. to have agile coaches. And then the final one I, th I would add is, is actually, look, this is a transformation. Um, and that means some of the classical transformation toolkit around how you actually is very, very, very relevant but also some of it isn't. So thinking that in a classical organizational design way, I'm gonna lock myself up with a small group of people in a room, I'm gonna design an architect, I'm then gonna execute for a period and bang, we're gonna have day one and hit a new structure. Really understanding it's a transformation, but really picking the right elements of the transformation toolkit that are relevant for what you're trying to do. Anything you'd add? Really doing the hard work to change the underlying culture, mindsets and behaviors, uh, I think is a pretty big, failure mode, not doing enough of it. There is such a thing as um, not quite failing, but not quite achieving the promise of Agile. And what I mean by that is, I think there's, we're seeing more and more people recognize the need to do it, but sort of reading the book, hiring maybe one Agile coach or something that sort of says, we're gonna change the labels, we're going to you know, make some teams, um, and we're gonna you know, check the box, we're Agile. No way. Right. And this is what I mean by really it's you can't just sort of surface level get there. You no, have it's to like do the deeper work. doing it like the performative agile without yeah. really doing it. Yeah. I mean, the number of people that I kind of encounter that says, oh, we're agile. And, and when you ask actually, like call it the leadership team, when you say, you know, OK, you say you're agile. What does that mean? Ten people around the table will give you ten different definitions. It means we have open space. It means we have three teams. That's the only thing I would guard against is to, if you're going to do it, really do the deep work. And it's not a, a little bit of work to do. Awesome. Well, we are out of time. I should let you go. But Sharina and Shale, thank you. That was thank great you fun. Very much. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the McKinsey podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at McKinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.